Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Today we have a special treat. Uh, we're doing a little something on country music and opioids, and we have Dr. Charlie Resnikoff with us, the Dr. Charlie Resnikoff. <laughs> Do and you love so, that or hate that? Yeah. I, don't, I don't mind it. Yet. You should listen to the end of the, one of the most recent podcasts, maybe the one we taped last night, because at the end we like said it in unison. It's kind it's of funny. <laughs> you know, you know, when you're the Charlie Resnikoff, that's nice. But when you've really arrived, you're just like a one name. Entity. Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, did you, Rez. See Charlie? did you see Rez came the in? Rez. The Rez. Yeah. Like Madonna or Cher. So what do we need to know? Wouldn't country. you Prince, though? I'm, we're on the music thing. Did you interrupt yeah. me? Prince has a symbol. That's not even a word. Like, yeah. Does that make you even more cool? We'll just make you an R. Yeah, well, Prince had that deal with the record company where he signed a bad contract, and they and he had to change his name to get whatever. Oh. I don't know. So I think I think his name became partly owned by Atlantic or whatever his record company was. I forgot who they Interesting. were. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah, All bad right. deal. Well, teach us something about opioids and country music, Charles. Yeah, this by is the way, before we get on that, Prince, there's currently an amazing live Prince concert from 1985 on YouTube. If you do Prince Live, Purple Rain, 1985, it's like all his hits in 1985, and it is full-on Prince in high heels, dancing and doing the splits, guitar solos, the whole... It's, wow. wow. If you want to see Prince in his heyday, that it is just was put out like maybe a week ago. It's amazing. Okay, but <laughs> and then you'll see from that intro that country music is not actually my passion. So I don't know that much about country music. So this was a learning for me about uh, this style of music and the people who performed it. Well, it's nice you could wear plaid for this talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> you won't say anything. Uh, I have no comment. Yeah. <laughs> he double checks. Yeah, no, no plaid. <laughs> so, um, all right. So I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm going to sort of do as we did in the prior three episodes about opioids and music, which is just to call out um, musicians who were addicted to opioids and songs they sang and kind of try to tell a little bit of the story. Um, one of the things that's interesting about reading about country music is, you know how every country song is like a sad story about, you know, a love gone wrong and someone drank too much whiskey and, and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, dog got shot. Yeah, well, they're not yeah. faking it. That stuff really happened to country <laughs> <laughs> You read up on them and you're like, people. Come on, people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you heard me talk about one already today, and that is... Um, uh, Marianne Faithful, Sister Morphine. So I already talked about this briefly on the Echo. Um, so I'm going to re revisit that slightly. Uh, Sister Morphine. So she was a country rock singer. She was living in London, and she was a heavy influence on the Rolling Stones. Uh, she's the one who kind of got Keith Richards thinking about country music. Him, her, and Graham Parsons got um, Keith Richards thinking about bringing some country style into the Rolling Stones music. And mm. she was dating uh, Mick Jagger, and she was, like, giving him books to read and saying, hey, you should check this out, check that out. So she was really influencing uh, the Rolling Stones' art. Um, and she put out the song Sister Morphine, and it's this country rock song about... And I talked about it last time because I thought it was a Rolling Stones song. 
Everybody, I mean, I think everybody thought it was a Rolling Stones song for a while, but she actually recorded it first. And in her recording, Mick Jagger is doing backup vocals. A guitarist named Rye Cooter, famous guitarist, was doing guitar. And Charlie Watt from um, the Rolling Stones was the drummer. So she had this all-star musician. She was singing its great song. Um, So she released it in 1969, her version of Sister Morphine. And then, so then she had a really rough time. She was at Keith Richards' house partying. And it, there was a drug raid, and she happened to be totally naked. And they well, carried, that's odd. Yeah, and they like, carried her <laughs> out in a fur rug because she oh, didn't have anything. Gosh. So she was, like, publicly waltzed out of a drug raid with, like, totally naked other than a fur rug over her shoulders. Um, and it just destroyed her. Uh, so, you know, she is someone who had just that year sung on a Beatles album. She's, well, you know— You'd think that that happens nowadays. You'd get like four million hits on YouTube. Yeah, right. Right. So she. <laughs> Look the at fact me. that you just said the hits. On, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's impressive. So she had, I and mean, she was singing on a Beatles album, and then a year later, she's just humiliated publicly, and she said, "Quote: It destroyed me. To be a male drug addict and to act like that is always enhancing and almost glamorizing, but a woman in that situation becomes a slut and a bad mother." I thought it was really interesting she said that. Anyways, mm. she had such a hard time after that drug bust. She became homeless and hopelessly in debt to people, drug-addicted heroin and cocaine. And um, the Rolling Stones then covered her song on their album, Sticky Fingers, which I mentioned in another podcast, but they didn't give her credit because they knew if they gave her credit, they'd have to pay her royalties. And if they paid her royalties, it would just go to all the people she owed money to. So they agreed to keep her name off the credits and then decades later, she got the money back and the credit back. So she's now listed as the co-author of uh, Sister Morphine. And I just wanted to read a couple of the lyrics of Sister Morphine. Um, it starts out with this uh, describing a man dying in pain. And morphine is part of the dying process. Here I lie in my hospital bed. In my hospital bed. Here I lie in my hospital bed. Tell me, Sister Morphine, when are you coming around again? Oh, I don't think I can wait that long. Oh, you see that my pain is is so strong. That's oh. like many of our patients in the hospital. Right. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're clock watching for their next dose of Dilaudid. My pain is so strong. But then the song evolves into from a story of death and sort of palliative care almost to a story of addiction because she says, well, it just goes to show things are not what they seem. She's referring almost to her own song. Sure. Thing, you know, I started out this way. I'm switching it up on you. Please, Sister Morphine, turn my nightmares into dreams. So now we're using morphine to get high. Uh, oh, can't you see I'm fading fast and this shot will be the last. Please, Cousin Cocaine, lay your cool cool hands on my head. Hey, Sister Morphine, you'd better make up the lion bed because you know and I know in the morning I'll be dead. So Withdrawal? now it, be- it becomes an addicted person who's using and is you know might die from an overdose. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So I that's, do like the whole theme though of if this was a, a male, it'd be okay because yeah. it's like it is still now to yeah. this day. Yeah, I know it's for sure. And, and I'll tell you these other stories, the other country acts, and just imagine if a woman act this way, how she would be humiliated, and then now it's just like the outlaw. Mm. When you read about country musicians who get addicted to opioids, they refer to themselves as. Uh, country outlaws uh, or outlaw country or something like that. Yeah. That's their style of music. And it's like glorified Johnny cash. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but by the way, interesting side note on Marianne faithful mm-hmm. wrote sister morphine. She re- she had hepatitis C. She was treated for that su- successfully. She's in her seventies living in London. Wow. She just survived about of COVID-19. 
and she went public on it. Wow. wow. So, yeah, she just publicly thanked her hospital workers who saved her life. Nice. Interesting case. What a what a story. I mean, just thinking back to what you said about her very beginning, yeah. how did she get involved with all of it? Like, yeah. Did she just happen to, you know, be childhood friends with some of these people or did she just happen to be like this drop dead gorgeous person who just happened upon somebody at a bar? Or? She is gorgeous. She happened to be a talented musician who was writing songs and her songs and was playing these like sort of country rock songs and then famous musicians saw her and I, frankly, I think they used her for her intelligence and her songwriting ability um, because uh, they sort of took musical ideas from her and used them in the Rolling Stones wow. and the Beatles. Uh, they wow. both used used her for her talent. So she was playing in the, the London clubs and they just saw her and drew her in and, you know, used her. And then if you think about it, kind of. Dumped her, the dumped right? her. Yeah, she ended up pretty rough. And they back, didn't give her they didn't give her songwriting credits for twenty years. I think back then, you know, it was harder for it was obviously very hard for the women to get a platform yeah. and get moving. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Well, it still is. You became the drug dude in Little Falls first because no one would have listened to me. Oh, I didn't know this. History. Oh, you didn't know the history. Oh, uh, we'll we'll do that. We we'll do we'll do a we'll do a podcast on tangent how this program got going. <laughs> but I want to do my historical figure. I want to chat with that lady. Yeah, Marianne Faithful. Mm. She'd be wow. cool. Yeah. So okay, the next person I want to talk about is uh, is a is a duo, Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris. Um, and Graham Parsons is this innovative country rock singer. He sang for the Birds, and then he formed his own kind of country rock band called the Flying Burrito Brothers. It's a goofy nice. sounding name, but they were they were a pretty cool country rock band. Uh, and then he went solo, uh, and he was very influential. He also was involved, you know, influential with the Rolling Stones, etc. So he uh, his roadie. There's an interview with his roadie, his manager, and his manager is like. Every day you had to go through his stuff to find his drugs and then dispose of his drugs. And then every day he'd go out and find more drugs. So in 1973, he was um, on tour. They went to Joshua Tree in uh, California. Mm. He was at a hotel and he cooked up with a local connection for morphine. And he just went off and used morphine and alcohol and he overdosed. And I mentioned this uh, at another, uh, at the Echo, but his bandmates found him overdosed. And they didn't know what to do in 1973. So they literally put ice cubes up his rectum because they thought that was going to save him. And yeah, he woke up and they thought he was all right. And they left the room and he went back into overdose and he died. Wow. Um, and so Graham Parsons, um, he wrote, and then he brought in Emmylou Harris, who is an amazing country singer herself. And she was not a drug user like him. And they weren't, there's rumors that they were dating. They weren't dating. They were just a great harmony vocal duo. And uh, there's a there's um, an excellent album that I would recommend called um, uh, Grievous Angels, which was released posthumously after Graham Parsons. It was recorded before he died with Emmy Lou Harris. And then he died. And then it was released after his death. And it's a beautiful album. I have it on vinyl. And uh, one of uh, the What's songs, that? yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, one of the songs in particular, the last song in the album is called uh, Fallen Angel. Um, and uh, he, uh, oh no, the last, uh, sorry, the last song is called In My Hour of Darkness. And that mm -hmm. is a, a, about uh, three different stories told in this country rock song about a man driving in the night on a curvy road who dies and about a singer, arguably him, 
uh, who uh, is singing songs about death, possibly forecasting his own death, and also about an old man looking, uh, giving advice to a young man. And so this is probably singing about his own his own death, and then he dies after recording the song. It's a duet with Emmy Lou Harris. Wow. Um, yeah, and um, weeks before his death, he said of his himself, uh, "Death is a warm cloak, an old friend." He was sort of courting death with his drug use. Hmm. He was just like on this. Some of these musicians, some of these individuals, are just on this constant hunt for drugs, and it's um, really pretty tragic. And Emmy Lou Harris said. Um, when Graham Parsons was together, i.e. not wasted, uh, there was nothing like his presence on stage. He had this extraordinary command, amazing charisma. So he was very talented when sober. Wow. You know, it's funny because I think we've all seen those people. I have a patient who uh, overdosed about six months ago and died. And I remember probably a year before that, he said to me that uh, that it's really that chance of death that makes it so yeah. exciting yeah. and that you go into it always knowing that that that's a possibility but that's part of the rush yeah and uh, so a lot of times the, i mean i i think most of them feel like that's uh, at times going to be the the one thing that gets you know gets them that overdose yeah and then you have the flip side like i the one of mine that finally went to treatment yesterday actually said like i never even think about it she's like i'm just don't want to be that sick and I'm just I don't even care yeah. it doesn't cross my mind until I'm like coming out of the the next use before I get sick I think oh I guess I survived that I think that someday we'll have subtypes of people with opioid addiction and one of them will be these sort of this daily struggle impulsive these people that are seeking the highest high and they're more at risk for overdose and then there's others that are maybe a little more compulsive and they're just happy to be clear of it I don't know if those are individual subtypes or there are different phases of recovery. I don't know what that is. I don't know. But I, I'm hoping for, I have a patient, Kurt, like the one you mentioned, and I'm hoping that Sublocate can help some folks like this. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. yes. And we're actually just getting that rolling. So yeah. mm -hmm. The next guy, real outlaw, Towns Van Zant. I don't know if you know this guy. Towns Van Zant is this country, country folk singer and is supposedly as good of a songwriter as Bob Dylan. That's a bold, mm. bold statement. But he's a very talented songwriter. He was uh, written about alleged to have bipolar disorder. Um, and in his childhood, he, because of his mental illness, he received insulin coma shock therapy. You remember wow. they used to do that? Wow. They literally induced a seizure, hypoglycemic seizure with insulin to treat mental illness. Wow. Messed up. But I suspect, and they said ever since then, he's had thinking and memory problems. Oh, I'm sure. So I suspect he had brain damage from some of the insulin hypoglycemic episodes. And he behaved like brain damage. This guy was out of control. Like he, alcoholism and many addictions, including heroin addiction, very impulsive, very capable of violence. Um, the, he died in 1996 in his 50s. And, um, you know, he was in and out of heroin addiction. He, was, he wrote these incredible songs. Um, towards the end of his life, he was less productive because he was so intoxicated all the time. But at the end of his life, he 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 was so intoxicated. He somehow nobody knows what happened. But he on the on his way home, he fell somehow and broke his hip, and just literally dragged. He was just drunk as heck and intoxicated. He dragged himself into his house, didn't seek care, and then he showed up the next day at a recording studio with a bunch of young hip hipster musicians and in comes like old 50 year old towns van zant drunk with a broken hip who hadn't sought care 
And these musicians are like, whoa. <laughs> what, what is going on? <laughs> we, we're not, yeah, cancel the recording session. Yeah, what's that thing sticking out of your hip yeah. there? <laughs> so Just they, a bone, that's they, okay. Yeah, so they canceled the recording sessions. He went home, refused care again. They got. They called all his friends. They finally got him to the, to the hospital nine days after he broke his hip. Um, and then he went to surgery, got his hip fixed, and then he immediately checked out AMA. And they're like, uh, dude, you're going to go into alcohol withdrawal, opioid withdrawal. You're not safe. He went home anyways. And then he went into delirium tremens and he, and he died from delirium oh. tremens. And, wow. um, so like this guy was real, a real nutcase. Yeah. His friends reportedly tried to cure his delirium tremens by getting him stoned cannabis. Uh, cannabis may have some medicinal effects. That ain't one. <laughs> swing and a miss there. Yeah. <laughs> oh my uh, but, gosh. but he 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 recorded a song in ninety. So that was ninety six that he died. Ninety two he recorded a song called Cowboy Junkies Lament, and he was the cowboy junkie. Uh, so it oh. won't be long. I'll be gone. I've been leaning towards the shadow all along. Those in the know say how it goes. You plan on reaping. You better sow. You plan on sleeping, you better keep moving. Sleeping ain't allowed around here, you know. Tell me, please, when the rolling's over, me and my baby gonna have some fun, bury our backs in a bed of clover, smile in style as the sun goes down. So hmm. he's basically like, I'm dying. Yep. I'm going out like this. I'm gonna bury my back in a bed of clover and let the sun go down on me. Yep. It's uh, yeah, very poetic. Yep. Um, Man, he just, wow. uh, he predicted the future. Yeah. He yeah. saw it coming. Drinking a bottle of liquor a day, plus opioids. And yeah. and well. Yeah. So his understudy in the 1970s was a guy named Steve Earle. Oh. Steve Earle's a country music guy. And uh, Steve Earle and um, uh, Steve Earle and Towns Van Zandt, both born in Texas, both moved to Nashville, and they met in Nashville. And in the 70s, Steve Earle was kind of Towns Van Zandt's understudy. Um, but in the 1980s, Steve Earle got his own career and was pretty successful at first. Uh, he got like three or four albums, really well-reviewed, popular albums. But and unfortunately, all those sort of excesses that Towns Van Sant passed on to him, the opioids, the alcohol, the cocaine, all those things caught up with Steve Earle. And this is kind of colorful language. Steve Earle's, by the way, he's not, uh, he's like a, He's like a social. He's like a socialist Bernie bro. He's very oh, political. Yeah. So he's, he's like a socialist country rocker, whatever. But he he. But I say that's that that's a because, bunch of words that don't usually go together. Yeah, well, <laughs> you never know. Uh, but he said this that from 1990 to 1994. He referred to that time period as his quote vacation in the ghetto, which is wow. sort of colorful, inappropriate language for where he was and what he was doing. Uh, but he was using uh, heroin and cocaine during that time. And then in 1993, he was arrested, drug charges. And in 1994, he had a firearm charge. So he was in trouble. And then in 1994, he was incarcerated. And he finally got sober um, in jail. And then he went straight from jail to a treatment facility. Mm -hmm. And at the treatment facility, he started writing what would become his comeback album. And then since 95, he's been sober and has had just like a string of commercially and critically successful albums. So Steve Earle, and then, you know, I think there's a bunch of great songs, but uh, one song Steve Earle wrote uh, was called Goodbye. It was written in 1995, and it's one of those clever songs where is he saying goodbye to drugs? Is he saying goodbye to a friend who died from drugs? Is he saying goodbye 
to a girlfriend because she left him because he's using drugs. Um, and it's all of the above. Hmm. So um, I remember holding on to you all of them long and lonely nights. I put you through some all them long and lonely nights I put you through somewhere in there. I'm sure you sure I made you cry, but I can't remember if we said goodbye. But I recall all of them nights down in Mexico. One place I how come country songs always end up in Mexico? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. I took my horse down there. Yeah. One place I may never go in my life again. Was I just off somewhere just to, just too high? But I can't remember if we said goodbye. I only miss you here every now and then. Like the soft breeze blowing up from the Caribbean. Most Novembers I break down and cry, but I can't remember if we said goodbye. Uh, so interesting thing about Steve Earle, uh, just a funny side note before we move on. Steve Earle in the 90s was so bad off that no one could get to him. He was, you know, when he was in his uh, vacation in the ghetto phase, uh, everyone was like, how do we get through to this guy with the heroin and the crack and everything? And they're like, I know. Let's let's get his buddy Towns Van Zant, uh, his old buddy and mentor. Let's do an intervention with Towns Van Zant." Um and so what they did is they got Towns Van Zandt and said, hey, you got to go help Steve Earle. He's, he's, he's using drugs. <laughs> Towns Van Zandt shows up hammered, drunk, right. and does an intervention drunk. And Steve Earle in retrospect, now Towns Van Zandt's dead. Steve Earle in retrospect's like, weird person to send to an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> the, the alcoholic who would soon die of delirium tremens. Here, hold this bottle. Drink. I need to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Don't drink and I need it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple more. Uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know this. Kurt, you may know this. Apparently the biggest singer in America in the 1970s. Yeah, she was big. You know. She, you know yeah. And she, she had some big songs. Didn't she? She's didn't the one she who married. Uh, she married the uh, governor. She married Jerry Brown of California. Correct, yes. She dated uh, the uh, George Lucas. Yep. She dated uh, one other famous person. So she was... Uh, Celebrity culture before the Kardashians and the 1970s. You know, I I didn't quite see the Jerry Brown linking up with Linda Ronstead thing at the time because she was, it was a different, they were quite different. Oh, they were. Let me just say that, yeah. yeah. Well, Jerry Brown probably had his charisma, his Zen Buddhist charisma. Uh, anyways, uh, she actually performed many songs written by Warren Zevon. Uh, Werewolves of London. Yeah. She didn't do Werewolves of London. Excitable Boy. Those are Warren Zevon songs. Yeah, Warren. He was a legend. Yeah, I'm he, a big fan. He he had he had issues. He, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm gonna we're gonna tangent for just a moment. I saw him on this show, and you know, he got died of lung cancer. Oh, mesothelioma. I think was it mesothelioma. I think so. It was, it was yeah, a lung it, tumor. Yeah, yep, yep. And he was given so much to to live, and of course, he wrote an album before he died. Yeah. And I saw him being interviewed, and I can't remember by whom he was being interviewed. And he had written this uh, this album, be- and figured he'd be dead when it came out because it said some things that maybe he didn't want to say mm. when he was alive. Yeah. And so he's being interviewed, and he goes, "Frankly, I'm a little embarrassed. I'm still alive because uh, you know I really don't want to talk about this <laughs> <He's> stuff." <laughs> he, he was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, he he apparently had OCD and a bad alcoholism, lots of drug use. He had a lot of struggles, but he wrote some many of Linda Ronstadt's songs were written by him, including Carmelita. Um, and oh, by the way, Zivon finally got sober when he went to a little drug treatment facility in Minnesota. Hazelton. I don't know, nameless, oh. but I, I bet. And then <laughs> later, he wrote a song based on that facility called "Detox Mansion." 
So. Oh, well. Yeah. So I'm, Center City, here we come. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, Warren Zevon went to detox in Minnesota. Uh, but Linda Ronstant uh, recorded Carmelita in 1977. And uh, I'll read a couple lyrics. Carmelita, hold me tight. I think I'm sinking down. And I'm all strung out on heroin on the outskirts of town. While I'm sitting here playing solitaire with my pearl-handled deck. Uh, the county won't give me no more methadone, and they cut off my welfare check. Carmelita, hold me tight. I think I'm sinking down. I'm all strung out on heroin on the outskirts of town. Well, I pawned my Smith, Smith and Wesson, and and I went to meet my man. He hangs out down on Alvarado Street by the Pioneer Chicken Stand. Okay, there you go. <laughs> subtle. I th- yeah, that I mean, was pretty subtle. Was that, that was about? Su- what was that about? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I think he was talking about drugs. I think my... She- Am I on? Am I on? Yeah, I'm here. You're on. You're getting... I turned it down a little. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Sorry. Uh, I got one more musician to talk about. Go for it. Uh, and I spoke about him earlier today on Echo. Uh, the Jayhawks, Gary Loris. Uh, Gary Loris is the lead singer of the Minnesota band, the Jayhawks. It was a country rock, kind of a vocal harmony group from Minnesota from the 80s. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, great Great stuff. Uh, they uh, their style. They kind of were a bridge between the Rolling Stones, Graham Parson era, the seventies, and the, like the Wilco, Uncle Tupelo era of the nineties uh, and the aughts. And uh, so Gary Loris, uh, they they had this. You know, they broke up. The Jayhawks broke up, and then subsequent to that, Gary Loris had a really hard time touring on his own without his his bandmates, and he fell into addiction, pharmaceutical opioid addiction. He had a lot of struggles, and he eventually went to drug rehab. And I mentioned this earlier, but the rehabilitation center he went to was owned and run, operated by Eric Clapton. Crossroads uh, Rehab, it's in one of the Caribbean islands, probably fitting for right? musical performers. <laughs> I've seen, but I've seen that on like no. uh, Dateline or something, one of yeah. those shows, but yeah. I think it's free. Is it? Well, he. I know in, in this instance, Gary Loris got a sponsorship so I think if you're a musician, a performing musician, there are sponsorships available to pay for it. Yeah. So wow. that was the, what they said for him is that there's a fund available to get these musicians the care they need. Because a lot of times, I mean, how many times today did we hear this musician got addicted and was ended up homeless using heroin? And they were like famous eight months ago. And now they're just like the record company has all the money. They don't have anything. and They're homeless mm-hmm. using heroin. And this is kind of what happened to Gary Loris. And, but anyways, he got uh, a, a scholarship to go to Eric Clapton's rehab center. He's sober. And he, um, really, he wrote a song in treatment and put it on his most recent album called Leave the Monsters Behind. It's a little obliquely uh, covering the topic of addiction and recovery. But um, he says in it, leaving the monsters behind, sticking it out never knowing what you got. Bury me down by the river, lazy, kicking around all all the old favorite haunts. I don't want to fight, giving it up, screaming at midnight. I don't want to fight. Seems there's no place to hide. One step ahead of the hustle. If I move fast, I'll outrun my past. Huh. So it's just, you know, it's the, it's the exhaustion and the fatigue. He's writing this in treatment of trying to outrun his past, not knowing if he should fight or give up, um, wanting to scream, um, thinking about his own death, leaving his monsters behind, sticking it out, all those elements that people run through people's heads when they're trying to get sober. Uh, So that's my quick survey of country music. Interesting. 
Yeah, and what's next? Is it going to be like opioids and field hockey? <laughs> <laughs> Just a thought. I was thinking like NFL. the modern day. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I'd so uh, I, to is me it hard because the, they're still alive. To me, the if there's active. if we're going to do musical genres, I would say grunge is an easy one to do. I talked a lot about that in the echo today. Yeah. R and B. R&B and rap, there's a lot there. Marvin oh, Gaye saying mm. about it. And, uh, you know, of course, Prince. And then there's this guy, Raphael Sadiq, is this amazing R&B artist who lost his brother to a heroin overdose mm. and made an entire beautiful album in 2019 about his brother, I think Jim was his name. But Raphael Sadiq has a beautiful album out. It's an R&B album. So I would say R&B or grunge would be my... So we yeah, so we don't know where what Charlie will bring back next Or time, the right? NFL. Maybe like NFL Ooh. players. There's a lot of NFL players who are addicted to opioids. Yeah. A lot of it's still, I think, suppressed. But well, yeah. Well, but famous quarterbacks. Yeah. Like, well, Brett Favre got sober. I was just going to say Brett Favre. Brett, um, Brett Favre, yeah. I mean, Brett uh, Favre got sober. That's one of the reasons I like Brett Favre is that, you know, he got sober. And then after he got sober, he got another MVP. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, we better end this one, move on to the next. So thanks, everybody, for stopping by and listening, and we will see you again next week. I love when he says see you because, like, no one can see us. But anyway, go for our battle legs. All right. Thank you. Thank you.